Hi, everyone, and welcome to EHS on Tap, the podcast for environmental health and safety professionals. I'm Chris Soplensky. Summer is around the corner, and with increased temperatures come increased risk of heat stress incidents in the workplace. Workers who are exposed to extreme heat or work in hot environments, indoors or outdoors, or even those engaged in strenuous physical activities, may be at risk for heat stress. And heat stress can cause all sorts of illnesses. Heat stroke, heat exhaustion, heat syncope, which is a temporary loss of consciousness, heat cramps, heat rashes, or even death. Employers want to ensure that their workers are safe and at the same time want to maintain productivity. What are an employer's responsibilities and what are their options for certain workers who may be more at risk than others? On today's episode of EHS on Tap, we discuss heat stress challenges with Abby Ferry, CEO and Chief Consultant of the Ferry Group. Abby, welcome to EHS on Tap. Thank you. So I know that there isn't a specific regulation for heat stress prevention, but what does OSHA require? So it depends if we're looking at a state where federal OSHA has jurisdiction or if it's a state plan state, because some states actually do have their own regulation for heat stress. Okay. And especially Cal OSHA, they've got a heat stress prevention regulation, and that's been used as a framework for lots of employers who want specifics to follow as they would develop their own programs. There's some other states um, out there in the, the West, WISHA in Washington State, and Oregon OSHA also have guidelines on heat illness prevention that anyone could access and, and use those as a, a framework for their own program. Great. And then for me, um, I'm in Minnesota, which most people don't think of heat here. Uh, but Minnesota OSHA has guidance for indoor workers that are exposed to heat illness. Okay, great. Um, so how does OSHA's general duty clause apply? So um, before that, I guess, uh, just a little bit more on the federal level, that OSHA's guidance is usually that old standby phrase of water, rest, and shade. So although there's no specific standards, it's suggested by OSHA that employers make sure that workers have access to drinking water and have the ability to take rest breaks in the shade as needed. But federal OSHA doesn't get into as many specifics as Cal OSHA does about how many people should be able to fit under the shade and how much water to have at the beginning of the day. They're just saying water, rest, shade. Um, And then OSHA also requires that a hazard assessment be conducted to determine personal protective equipment that workers are to use. And then OSHA goes on to talk about the use of PPE in hot environments, that you should definitely include that information in your PPE assessment. And there's standards that are related to this PPE assessment specifically for both general industry and construction at the federal level. And then another Uh, federal OSHA thing, I guess, that discusses heat is that in their record-keeping standard, they do mention that any treatment beyond first aid for heat-related illnesses would then make them a recordable incident. Okay. Uh, Also, there's there's a little bit more on the OSHA, federal OSHA sanitation standards for general industry and construction also talk about uh, making sure that employers have 
and provide potable water for workers. And again, federal OSHA doesn't get into the specifics like California does, where California actually specifies cool or uh, suitably cool potable water. So federal doesn't get that specific. And then um, the last thing I just want to mention on the, the federal OSHA uh, regulations is that OSHA's construction standard has a provision for safety training and education. So that's just kind of general, but if heat illness is a potential exposure, then heat illness training should be included in worker training. So getting that down to OSHA's general duty clause, um, the general duty clause, it's about employers being required to provide workers a workplace free from recognized hazards. Okay. You can't see me, but I'm doing my air quotes because that's the specific language. Right. So <laughs> heat stress is definitely a recognized hazard. We all know about it, and we know that the heat slows down workers, um, especially this time of year, which is probably why we're talking about it, um, as our bodies try to acclimate when the seasons change. Or if a worker is assigned to a new site that has a warmer climate than they're used to. So the general duty clause does apply. <clears throat> and then there's some other aspects of the OSHA, the federal OSHA standards that we should consider also, is that OSHA has several letters of interpretation that date back to the 90s that are related to heat stress. So the most recent one that I found is uh, from 2014, and it discusses the use of hard hats while working on roofs in hot weather. Okay. Because that would be pretty tough. Um, you, you keep all the, the heat in your body with something on top of your head. Mm. So in OSHA's response to that letter of interpretation, or the, the actual letter of interpretation, they reference <clears throat> 5A1, the general duty clause. And they also go on, which is interesting, um, they specify, or I guess, suggest that elements of an employer's policy should include uh, lots of work practice controls. Um, so this would be things like a work rest regimen where you would state that a worker works an hour and then has a five-minute break or something like that. And in this letter of interpretation, they mention the ACGIH heat exposure TLVs. So ACGIH stands for American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists. And so they set forth TLVs, threshold limit values, so I didn't look that up for this podcast preparation, but yeah, that's, okay. that's something I could provide if, if needed after after the call here. Um, some other stuff in this 2014 letter of interpretation, OSHA mentioned acclimating new or returning workers and rescheduling work to cooler parts of the day, encouraging drinking of small amounts of cool water. So they do actually talk about cool water. Uh, every 15 to 20 minutes, and also providing training for workers. So there's a few more letters of interpretation that I found um, that were pretty interesting. Um, and I don't know, do I have time to point them out? I've got two more that I'd like to... Sure, absolutely. We've got time. Okay, cool. So there's a letter of interpretation from 2010 that was in response to a company in Florida where it's pretty humid and hot. And um, it lists a lot of those same work practice controls, as well as mentioning heat-related emergency situations and rendering first aid immediately when a worker displays symptoms of heat-related illness. Okay. So this kind of goes into 
Kalosha. I think maybe this is where they got some of their language about making sure that you can render first aid right away and that uh, you consider that access to emergency services. Um, this particular 2010 letter of interpretation also mentioned making sure that the employer permits workers to drink water or cold liquids like sports drinks, and the quote they used was, at liberty. So making sure that you're not saying you can only drink water or sports drinks at this specific break time, but giving workers the ability to have that stuff with them right at the work area. Then um, there was another interesting letter of interpretation. This one goes back to 1998, and it talks about OSHA's policy on skin cancer as a risk to outdoor workers. So this letter of interpretation refers to the uh, general industry standard on PPE and that employers are supposed to use effective forms of protection like wide-brimmed hats and long-sleeve clothing to make sure to limit the workers' exposure to the sun's radiation. So the letter also mentions situations where the only effective means of protection might be sunscreen, and then that should be used. So it's not necessarily saying you should provide those sorts of things, okay. um, but to make sure that they're available. So, again, if it's helpful to your listeners, I've got a whole list of links to the letters of interpretation that I found that relate to heat-related illness. So they could read the entire text of the, the letters that I've come across in my, my studies on this. Sure. And, um, and we can provide those um, on our articles on, uh, on safety.blr.com and, and viral.blr.com um, that include when we we cover the podcasts and our news articles, we will include those links there. So I'll re- I can repeat those um, those uh, sites at the end of the uh, podcast as well. So thank you. Um, so it sounds like even if you're not in a state that has specific regulations such as California or Oregon or Washington, um, that it's probably a good idea to have a formal program in place regardless. So should employers have a program in place for heat stress management, no matter what state they're located in? My answer is yes. Um, as many other safety professionals say, if it's not documented, it didn't happen. Okay. Or in the case of a written program, if it's not written in your program, how can you prove that you actually have a procedure? So, and usually, you know, I hate to threaten, you know, people with what if OSHA comes out to your site, but usually that's who we have to prove this stuff to. Correct. So if you are, you know, possibly um, in a place where you would have a, a random OSHA inspection or you're going for a VPP status or whatever it might be called in your particular state, in Minnesota we have MinSharp and um, MinStar are the different VPP programs. So if you're going for that sort of thing in a proactive mode, then definitely having a program that addresses this. So I'd always err on the side of safety and make sure to have that written program that addresses any identified exposures and risks and then also detailing the control measures that you would have in place. So really this goes back to hazard analysis. So I just talked to some students yesterday about um, just looking at what is your risk, what is the exposure to the workers, and who cares what OSHA standards might say one of the foundational OSHA standards is that general duty clause that we already talked about. So right. that tells you that 
if you have a, a adverse exposure for workers, that you've got to have something in place to um, control that risk to an acceptable level. So for heat stress, you can use multiple controls from our usual hierarchy of controls. So engineering controls or, or ways of isolating workers from the hazard of heat may not be practical because work usually just has to be done outdoors in the heat or in hot indoor environments. So then we lean on our administrative or work practice controls. So trying to minimize the time that a worker spends in the hot environment, so things like rotation of workers in and out of the hot environment, scheduling the most strenuous work for a cooler part of the day, or just a cooler season altogether. That's another good way to minimize that exposure. And then, of course, training workers just on how to recognize the heat stress symptoms in themselves and in others. Um, that all these controls should be considered uh, when you're writing your program. And of course, the last result, uh, resort in our hierarchy of controls is usually PPE, which seems like a weird thing to think about with heat stress. Um, so thinking about the PPE that we must wear, uh, hard hats, vests for workers that are outdoor and construction, these only add to our heat stress exposure, but we can't eliminate that stuff. So we still have to wear the PPE. So it's important to, to think about how we can keep workers out of the hot environment when they're wearing that PPE. And also, there's some really cool products on the market now, I guess that puns intended, yeah. um, cool products <laughs> that workers can wear that can minimize heat stress on the body. So things like hard hat liners or hats or other gear, um, they're available now in fabrics that can be soaked in water which then activates cooling mechanisms that can last for an hour up to eight hours or more. And you wear those on your um, pulse points on your body, and that can help keep your core temperature low. And wearing things like sweatbands on the head or at the neck, um, and especially if that sweatband has cooling properties, that can do a lot um, to keeping your body temperature under control and, and feeling that relief from the heat. Then um, there's some other technologies out there that don't involve soaking the fabrics because I know sometimes at remote sites that I've had experience with, we don't have access to you know nice, cool water that we can just plunge gear into. Yeah, right. um, so there's some products out there that just allow that evaporative cooling to take place. And then, of course, um, employers don't provide it, but just coaching employees on proper clothing to wear in hot environments. So the goal would be to wear fabrics that allow sweat to evaporate because that makes the body feel cool. So, you know, regular old cotton or stuff that's cotton blend that uh, tends to help with that. Oh, that's, thanks. That's great information. So uh, I understand that uh, NIOSH uh, released new research in its recent guidance Criteria for a recommended standard, occupational exposure to heat and hot environments. Can you tell us uh, about that and uh, any new information contained there that's uh, worth sharing? You know, I just became aware of that actually in preparation for this podcast. So okay. it's not something, I guess I'll say right there, that it's not something that's really been out there um, for it's out there because it's published by NIOSH and CDC, uh, but it's not something that's really been called attention to uh, for safety professionals. 
So it's not something I've got super direct experience with. I know it was just uh, released in, well, I guess it's probably been a year, so early 2016. Okay. And um, it's talking about mostly um, it's kind of dovetailing off of a 2013 NIOSH report about preventing heat-related illness or death in outdoor workers. So it's especially um, good information for those that work outdoors. And really what a lot of it is, it, um, it's kind of like a chicken and egg thing, like which came first, the California OSHA heat-related um, heat stress prevention programs or all this information, or kind of both at the same time. So the NIOSH report, it's really good information if you are just starting your heat stress program. Okay. Uh, so it talks a lot about um, biological effects and the different, I think I had mentioned evaporative cooling. Like, what is that? So um, that kind of information is in the NIOSH report where it talks about heat exchange and how this stuff works so that an employer can better understand um, the different gear and why we're providing certain things to the workers. Uh, it also talks, it goes into very great detail, which is good for training workers, um, information about how the heat can affect the body. So to me, because um, personally I, I worked in California for many years, okay. so I was in the industry when the heat standard was coming about from California. Mm. So a lot of the NIOSH information is very familiar to that process. So for people that haven't really contemplated a heat stress program, this NIOSH report, I think it's almost 200 pages. It's, I mean, it's got everything that you need um, for understanding why you would want to write a program, um, things that you could train workers on, and elements to add to your program about um, the heat stress symptoms and also how to just cool the workers. So it's great for answering questions that workers would have in the course of this type of training because people want to know more. They want to know more about what is uh, acclimatization. <laughs> you know, how do I acclimate to the weather? So this NIOSH report tells you some methods on how to do that. So again, it's, it's just kind of greater detail. It's almost like a OSHA guidance document without oh. being a standard. So it's out there. It's information that we all can use, and I think it is good information. But again, um, use caution because it does get into really technical stuff. Okay, great. Thanks. That's that's really helpful. Um, so you mentioned a couple of things already that um, that you someone would want to include in their policy and some ideas uh, to um, help workers who work in the heat. You know, such as rotating workers, working during a cooler time of day, uh, the different you know equipment options, uh, first the PPE options. But how about the case of somebody who um, is taking medication or has a pre-existing condition that makes them more susceptible to heat stress uh, or to a heat stress injury? What are the options for an employer there? So that's tough um, because we're limited by medical privacy laws in most states. So how I've, I wouldn't say gotten around this, but just how I've managed this is I've always made sure to mention in training with workers that they should be aware of their personal risk factors. So through the training process, I make sure that they understand that different medical conditions um, and medications that they may be prescribed, that they're not gonna help them out in the workplace when it's hot. 
that um, some medications might cause you to um, go through water more quickly. So their water intake might have to be double that of their coworker because of a medication, things like that. So I just I try to just get the awareness out there that okay. there are personal risk factors and hope that the worker you know, that has those risk factors or is taking a medication that they would take the appropriate action. So sometimes that means the worker would just inform a coworker of their condition or other times a worker may need to actually talk to their doctor about a specific medication they're on because it's making them more uh, fatigued or more quickly fatigued in the workplace because it's hot out. So this is also why the, the acclimation um, or acclimatization, I guess you can say it two different ways, mm-hmm. um, that's why acclimating to the environment is really important because this process, if you follow what Cal OSHA uh, prescribes for acclimatizing a worker or what not, the NIOSH report says about acclimation, is that this process allows the employer to observe how a person is adapting or not adapting to the work environment. And also, at the same time, it allows the worker to kind of self-evaluate evaluate how they're adapting to the hot environment where they can take stock of, okay, I've got this pre-existing condition or I'm taking this medication. I might need to talk to my personal doctor about this. So just with the, the medication and pre-existing stuff, I just say awareness and that training and communication process is key. That's Thanks. That's, that's great information. Um, I know you mentioned, um, you know, being able to look for warning signs of heat stress. Um, are there any other ways that employers can empower their workers to care for themselves to prevent heat stress? So I found that it's really tough to tell people to take breaks. You okay. would think that this would be really easy, but we often work in tough industrial dirty work environments where it's almost a badge of honor to kind of suffer a little bit. Right. So just through that training and awareness process, just let people know that we support your ability to take a rest break when you need it, when it's super hot. So they don't have to suffer through the heat or, you know, start to get into that heat-related illness territory. So and hopefully I can talk about it, but this summer at the ASSE Safety 2017 conference, mm-hmm. I'm actually moderating a panel on heat illness prevention. So the foundation for the panel is borrowing best practices from professional and college level athletic trainers and coaches. Because in these tougher industries, we talk a lot about the industrial athlete, and then we don't really take it much further. So. I think that this line of thinking about treating the workers like an athlete, um, that we can take it further. And so the panel is made up of uh, high-level athletes and coaches on how to prevent heat stress. And it's been really cool to talk to them in preparation for this panel about how the athletic trainer industry, they've done so much research on heat illnesses. But then we have this NIOSH report that's basically saying the same types of background information. So we all understand the biologic effects and how heat stress occurs, 
but it's that coaching and uh, giving the, the training and empowerment and um, information to the workers about what to actually do when they feel that they might be heading towards a heat illness. So workers, they're used to hearing the same water rest, rest shade message from OSHA mm-hmm. and from the employers. Um, so it's important for the employer to have those measures in place and to replenish them and also to just refresh their information. So this could mean investing in real shade structures instead of having workers improvise shade, like really walking the talk of their written program. Um, Also, in athletics, I see that they're using some gadgets. So I think a lot of the workers in our grittier industries, they could respond to gadgets and technology, but that could be fun too. There's some really cool shade structures that have misting systems built into them, and I've seen those come up in the market this year. So I think that's fun. (laughs) It reminds me of Disneyland or Disney World. (laughs) Um, If if a company has a budget for incentive or swag type of items, like T-shirts, making sure that T-shirts and other wearables are made of fast-drying fabrics so they allow the sweat to evaporate quickly. Um, Other items, make sure that that you choose fabrics that trap or move sweat to keep it out of workers' eyes or um, keeping it at the wrist so it stays off of their hands so that they don't lose any dexterity and and have sweaty hands and drop things. Mm -hmm. Um, Having sunscreen available or the ultimate, I guess, in in cooling um, technology or cooling vests where the worker actually wears a vest um, that can keep their core temperature down a little bit lower in really extreme heat environments. And cooling vests have come a long way since maybe 10, 12 years ago when I saw them for the first time. <laughs> they're very, um, they're nice looking. They're more modern. They fit closer to the worker's core, so it's not so bulky anymore. So just really explore how your um, the message that you're giving to the workers and try to freshen it up a little bit, maybe take that athletic approach to it, and then also introducing gadgets. I think those are two ways that we can, you know, especially at the beginning of the summer season, to try to get that awareness level up for the workers. Wow. Thank you. This is terrific information. Um, Do you have any final takeaways you can provide for employers uh, as they prepare their workforce for hotter temperatures this summer? I guess my biggest piece of advice is to talk about this before it gets really hot. So sometimes, um, you know, we think, oh, yeah, it's spring, summertime, this transition, it's going to get hot, great. Um, But we don't talk about heat stress and really the key factors until we're facing down a heat wave or 90-degree days. Mm -hmm. Um, So make sure workers really understand what heat illness symptoms look and feel like so that they can recognize them in themselves or others, because the key is getting help right away. That heat illness, it can be treated and minimized if you catch it early. Um, if you're being, you know, macho or trying to be tough in the work environment, you think you're fine, even though you start to feel like crap and really fatigued and sweating, and then the sweating stops and you're just bright red, mm. you know, that's an elevated type of heat illness, and that's not good. And it's going to be tougher to try to bring that person's temperature down and get them relief. So it's important, again, to make sure the workers understand what this looks like so that they can take that that rest break when they need it, that early intervention. Um, 
looking to, to states like Cal OSHA um, or Washington or Oregon OSHA, they talk about a formal buddy system. So you can look to especially Cal OSHA standards during high heat, um, which now I forget. I think high heat is when it's 85 maybe 90 and higher, I okay. forget now. Um, but they have some really good guidance about a formal buddy system during those high heat times and just making sure you have effective communication. Thinking about your, your solo workers, because I know there's still some jobs that require people to work by themselves. What if it's really hot? Um, can you really get in touch with them or can they get in touch with you if something were to happen? and think about how fast can your workers get medical attention. Uh, when OSHA comes out to job sites in the summertime, they interview individual workers to ask them to describe how they would instruct emergency service vehicles to get to their job site. So basically, do your workers really know where they're working? Right. <laughs> so it seems weird, yeah. <laughs> but a lot of these construction sites are in remote areas where um, you've got to give someone real directions. They can't just put it into Google Maps and find where to go. Yep. So make sure that you can answer these questions confidently before the first high heat day. So um, one last thought to, mm -hmm. to kind of tie all this together. I think we've talked a lot about um, how safety managers can do better with heat stress prevention and then getting information to the workers but that middle line, um, the direct managers and supervisors, they are the most, or I shouldn't say the most, but one of the most important groups to make sure uh, that they're well-trained on this topic of heat stress. So not just the workers who are directly impacted. Because if a worker is working for a supervisor who doesn't support the accl acclimation process or giving frequent rest breaks or providing for the frequent drinking of water, then people are going to have heat stress issues. So making sure that those supervisors really understand that, yes, the workers might need a break every hour instead of just twice a day uh, to make sure they're not uh, falling victim to heat-related illnesses this summer. That's, that's excellent advice. Um, thank you so much for providing the, our audience with these uh, hands-on and practical and helpful tips. Of course. And just a reminder that the links that Abby mentioned earlier will be available on safety.blr.com and enviro.blr.com in our article coverage of this podcast. Just search for Abby Ferry, that's first name A-B-B-Y, last name F-E-R-R-I, at either of those sites, and the podcast will come up. Thanks for listening, everyone. For EHS on Tap, I'm Chris Saplensky.